We this speaking of like the restaurant at the end of the universe. I had this thing, so like I was standing at the uh, 14th Street F stop for hours, like literally for like five hours. And actually, relevant to our talk with Patrick, that's where I listened to the talk. So the whole Patrick talk I listened to in the like bowels of the subway system as it was becoming increasingly clear that we were never going to get on the subway. And then I came back up and I was like standing outside for more hours and like trying to get a car, which were like a hundred dollars and like still wouldn't come. And eventually I went into this diner and it was, I don't know, it was like almost one of those slightly holy kind of moments where it's like you felt, you know, all these kind of like soaked and kind of like slightly crazed looking people had like gathered in there and just, I don't know, it was like everyone felt taken care of suddenly. And like, there was this moment where I think they were trying to close at two and it was, you know, 155 or something. And this like group of teenagers like stormed in and the waiter just kind of tried to stop them. And he's like, no, we're closing, whatever. And they just like blew past him. And they're like, we have to like, we, you know, it's urgent. We have to like, you know, have a table. And he kind of, he was like, okay. And he sort of let them sit down and they ordered like Belgian waffles. Like they got this whole feast. And then they just fell into this kind of loop where they were just like, thank you so much. Like, thank you so much. And they said it like so many times that they kept saying it, even when the waiter had left, like they just sat there like saying it like the whole time. <laughs> Oh, man, it, it definitely makes me feel, especially considering the conversation we had with Patrick, is that if we are, in fact, living in the new Gothic age, it seems to be tainted by the absurdism, which I think for things to be like truly Gothic generally have to have this romantic thread that runs through them. And maybe that's like where it can push the Gothic into ideas of terror but it seems like because we don't have any like real cause and effect to a lot of what's happening, that it's weird to think that like we live in a gothic absurd world and like what the combination of those two things together actually <laughs> look like and what the aesthetics of that, which are almost like dark camp. Yeah, I had that feeling like when I was in the diner last night, you know, and I was watching these teenagers with their like pageant of gratitude, like eating this pile of waffles. And then on the TV, you know, those TVs that are kind of like mounted next to the ceiling that a lot of diners mm -hmm. have on the TV it was some show that almost looked like, like an infomercial or, or some kind of antiques roadshow type thing of like people talking about different objects. But there was this one guy who I was pretty sure was Bill Clinton. And like, I spent the entire time not being able to tell, like he looked so much like, like Bill Clinton that I couldn't dismiss the hunch that it was. And yet I couldn't quite verify it. And I still don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's also another like great aesthetic of the Gothic New Age is that antiquity is on like an infomercial now. <laughs> there are actual reality shows around storage spaces being opened up. And then like, have you heard about how in parts of Scandinavia and because the temperature is getting so warm, the permafrost is melting and all of these like old Viking tools and weapons and, and fossils are beginning to like surface. Yeah, and there's a whole genre of horror movies too of like mastodon surfacing or super viruses or, you know, the ghosts of ancient cultures. Like the idea of, you know, something surfacing in a literal sense of coming up from the ground and the way that connects to something surfacing uh, as like a portent or something, you know, that you've tried to forget rising back in your mind or a memory, you know, ties it directly to the Gothic, I think. Just thinking about this last week, to put it into a linear timeline, we had, you know, started to leave Afghanistan. Then there was like a suicide bombing in Kabul. Um, 
it started, it reintroduced ISIS under the new moniker of ISIS K, which is like weird that like the media decided to like rebrand them with a letter, which, you know, ironically is how I <laughs> refer to myself as Paul K. But then, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. The, there's the original Paul that got re you're, you're the K series. Model. Yeah, I'm the point, I'm the 2.0 version. But, um, and then I feel like in the background of that, in the much less important but absurd way you have kanye west rebuilding his childhood home in a football stadium which is just such a kaufman-esque thing to do i mean i believe there was a, a movie that had this like same premise right uh synecdoche new york exactly yeah. yeah yeah and all the while he's creating this like religious album and the days that i think that it gets released this hurricane hits Louisiana, leaves, you know, this trail of devastation and up until yesterday travels all the way up to New York and just like blast the city. I mean, my street was just totally flooded. It were like cars floating down the street. It was just like madness. And then today it's just totally blue skies. It's beautiful out. It's like nothing ever happened. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like a dog who like destroys everything and like shits everywhere. And then like a second later just looks like completely innocent and lovable. Like it doesn't even remember what it did. <laughs> but the yes. sky is exactly like that. <laughs> totally. And I guess like just to tie this into our conversation with Patrick McGraw, we talk a lot about the Gothic new age and processing trauma, which I think is like the genesis of horror. And that's like where it begins. And I think depending on your approach to that is how you determine if you exist within a Gothic state, which animates your frame of mind, or if you're totally optimistic and looking away from it, I'm sure there's a, a much healthier way that's in the middle of these two poles where, you know, you are you incorporate whatever trauma you're going through and, and find a way to deal with it and move forward. But I think between uh, three guys that are very gothic minded, we don't we don't venture into those territories. Yeah, and, and maybe the gothic is about form of stasis. It's an ambiguous stasis, I think, because it's like something in the condition isn't changing. You know, that you're still haunted by your lost love or you're still traumatized by whatever happened in the past or, or say by the Spanish Civil War and Patrick's new book. So that isn't changing, but then time is moving on, right? So that's why the Gothic, you know, remains dynamic. And I think contend toward horror because it gets like darker and stranger and more desperate uh, the longer ago something was. Like I remember I was talking to a friend once and we hadn't caught up in a long time. And he was like talking about a breakup that he'd gone through and he's like, you know, I'm just so heartbroken. And like, it's just like, you know, it took me by surprise and the wound is so fresh. And like, I just don't know, like I'm reeling from it, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And then I was like, you know, when did this happen? And he was like, two years ago, you know, it just like <laughs> it completely changed, you know, which is like understandable, but it like totally changed the paradigm, you know, and I was kind of like unprepared to shift genre in that sense. Yeah, you're like, now you feel bad for the other person and not him. <laughs> yeah, or just like the whole frame of reference is, is, it's like it went from one style of drama, let's say, to, to another style kind of suddenly, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me think that, once again, for something to be gothic, 
or be within a Gothic state where, as you mentioned, has this, like this element of stagnation, there has to be an obsessive passion that goes along with it that almost touches upon desperation, but it's that moment where it doesn't, where you're just kind of in this like morbid outlook that that place is what animates your day-to-day life and causes you to be haunted and it's like this weird uh, sweet spot. It's like a mental seedy place. Yeah, well, it's like a present that isn't the present because it's somehow still the past. Mm-hmm. But but it can't, you know, it's like, I think the tension is that you have no choice but to live in the present. But if your present is somehow defined only by the past, it eventually drives you insane. And that present has to be imbued with a sense of decay at all times so it's like you're also in the future to a certain extent because you're actively dying within the present or decaying which i think is part of a the aesthetic of it but also the uh the haunting aspect of it yeah and if you want to take a more you know nihilistic approach you could say like the ultimate you know the gothic is always about something that went wrong in the past and if you want you know to look at it through a nihilistic lens you could say for every person that the thing that went wrong in the past is their own conception and then your life is dealing with that problem <laughs> until you could die that's like just a great way of thinking about america at this time and both existing and maybe potentially coming out of and then for some people not wanting to come out of the pandemic years all the while it seems like so many other things you know that have come from our past that have not been resolved or happening at the same time and it just really feels like we are entering into the new gothic age of american life at this moment definitely the element of humor seems distinct like that seems very different from Either, you know, Patrick's work has a sense of humor about it, but I, I think like the animating spirit is romance, right? And like certainly the, the way he talks about uh, Wuthering Heights and Joseph Conrad and a lot of the things that are major influences on him have a spirit of maybe doomed romance, but like they're fundamentally romantic. And I do feel like the spirit of America and the spirit of American fiction and art you know, that it, I think interests us both at this point has some element of like deranged humor, maybe in place of that romance. Yeah, I think that I think deranged humor in place of romance is uh, you kind of nailed it right there. I mean, <laughs> I, that's the only way I think we can like really articulate and com- compartmentalize the uh, like the undead zombie era that we're in where things are just kind of chugging along, but it seems like something like very integral to them existing or some, or maybe like their soul is just like not present. Yeah. And maybe on a meta level, like there's some, there could be a kind of romance to that humor. Right. But it's like the way that we can respond at this moment is not to make light of things, but to see how even on a very heavy and deep level, there's something fundamentally funny about the fact that, an entire situation that seems like not only sort of should be dead, but is dead in certain regards is nevertheless like still chugging along. And in some regards, like seemingly more durable than ever. Like that, that fact just is funny on some level. God who, 
who this quote is by, but I, I do remember it from that movie, <laughs> Old Boy, but it's laugh and the world laughs with you, weep and you weep alone. It really seems like, <laughs> it seems to really apply to these days. Yeah, and Patrick's books are very much a study of weeping alone, right? I mean, that's like the essence mm -hmm. of, of Spider or of Dr. Haggard or, or Asylum, you know what I mean? For the listeners that don't know, Patrick McGraw is just this amazing writer and he's written a few of i think both david and i's favorite books which include dr haggard's disease spider which was made into a film by david cronenberg there's asylum which was also adapted into a, i think a really great movie there's one called port mungo that both uh, david and i read during the pandemic which is i think his like most salacious and pulpy book yeah and to, to me it has like a holy memory now because I read it up in the Finger Lakes this summer. And when I look back on it now, it was like the only moment of complete relaxation and like absorption that I feel like I had all summer and therefore kind of all year. So like somehow reading Port Mungo felt like being in Port Mungo, you know, or some like place outside of normal life and like somewhere where you, I mean, the book itself, I suppose, is about how even in this remote you know, town in Honduras, uh, life catches up with you. But my memory of reading the book felt like for a day or two, I really was in a different headspace and like not caught up in any of the other things that are, are normally weighing on me. I totally agree. I, uh, I had a very similar thing. I'd read the book before um, years ago in college. And I just, oh, I basically just remember that I liked it. And I remember the vibe and some roundabout idea of the plot but having read it again in 2020 i was like yeah i had that very similar thing where i don't remember the last time i had like a, just a solid page turner that was just that immersive and that just pulled you into its world and and just enjoyable it's like it's very much in the in the i'd say in the vibe of my year of rest and relaxation and severance it's not quite as like heady as either of those books, but it definitely has this kind of like fun, dirty, pulpy, escapist, gothic vibe to it. Yeah, and I think it really succeeds at taking you along for the ride the characters are on. Like you get really excited about the idea that it would still be possible to live a totally bohemian life and just be an artist and a kind of, you know, elegant drinker in, in uh, this remote, you know, Caribbean town. And, and, and then you feel how the, you know, the mangrove swamp, like literally catches up with you and pulls you under. Like it, it, you're with it the whole time in a way that is very hard to do in a novel. Absolutely. But I also feel like it captures the reality of that too, which is most likely all of that is going to like turn on you and you're going to become an alcoholic and you're, you know, your like loose lifestyle is going to fill you with jealousy. And, you know, if your wife starts fucking other people, you're probably going to freak out. And if you have children, then you have to worry about the child getting sick. You know, the, it definitely gives the best of both worlds. And even the like decayed, crazy version of it is, is also just incredibly fun. Yeah. And I think it's often true. I mean, it's another gothic idea, I guess, but that things don't go wrong so much as just expand their initial conditions beyond the point where they're good. Mm. You know, like, like it's baked into the situation that if you follow that road long enough, 
you'll end up in a really dark place. And it's not that you got onto a different road. It's just that further down the road is something really bad. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of, um, let's say, was it 2019? I went to Hydra, which is an island in Greece where Leonard Cohen used to live when he was in his, I believe, in his 30s. And he's where he met Suzanne and apparently, you know, where he found his like voice as a musician and as a poet. And it's just this like, you know, my, my impressions of it were always of this just magical, beautiful bohemian place with all these other artists and writers. But uh, this documentarian I love named Nick Broomfield, who had done some well-known documentaries about Biggie and Tupac and Eileen Warnos and Kurt Cobain um, had done it. He had actually also used to live there during that time when he, I believe he was really young at that time, probably like early 20s. And he kind of traces the reality of it, which is exactly like this Port Mungo book, which is people got jealous, people turned into alcoholics, people got divorced, like eventually everybody had to leave. And for some reason, knowing that made it even more romantic and more important for me to go there, knowing that it was in some way like a mirage and and, and ruined people's lives just as much as it had fostered their creativity and been this paradise there's something very like potent and exciting about that yeah and i think you know speaking of someone like leonard cohen it's the legacy that our generation or say people broadly like born in the 80s grew up with i think is this like haunting specter of the failure of the 60s right and like there's this idea that people you know almost found a new way, right? Or almost achieved a kind of utopia outside. Almost got of, it right. Almost got it right. But it's like by failing, you know, not that it's worse than if they had never tried, but like there's some darker mark of like, it's, uh, you can see it as proof that whatever you were trying to escape is kind of inescapable because it's just in you. So you can make a commune or you can make a, you know, a tech revolution, or you can have all these different ideas, but it's like the same forces are just going to catch up with you no matter what, because they're already in you. Yeah, oddly enough, I'm, I'm reading both the, uh, the Guardian, the New York Times, and I'm also just finishing a, a reread of Wuthering Heights, uh, and I've got to the point where where Heathcliff is uh, becoming truly uh, monstrous. Uh, his cruelty knows no bounds. And uh, I am having the same feelings that I did when uh, I read what the Taliban had been doing in Afghanistan when they uh, took over in the 1990s in terms of the uh, the public executions and the uh, public amputations of, of hands and fingers and the public floggings they uh, um, they performed upon uh, people who had in some way offended, uh, you know, their particular brand of Sharia law. And that level of evil on a sort of, a, you know, a national scale um, somehow was mirrored. And I thought, now this is what the Gothic is really good at. You know, you take somebody like uh, Heathcliff, who, who uh, in, the, in the book, I don't think any of the films have done credit to the levels of cruelty that uh, Emily Bronte uh, describes in him. And I thought, there it is. You know, you take something like uh, what is happening in Afghanistan at this moment, 
and you concentrate it into one extremely dark, um, uh, cruel, sadistic um, man who has a bizarre passion, a love for a dead woman uh, and even kind of dig, digs up her grave is what happened a, a few pages back. Uh, in order to ensure that when he was buried next to her, the sides of their coffins could be lowered and they could intermingle their bones so that nobody would be able to tell where the one began and the other ended. And I thought, this is madness and it's cruelty and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's inhuman uh, to the worst degree. And the same thing is occurring as we speak, you know, in, in, uh, in Kabul. Our perception of the Taliban has just changed so much from the beginning of the millennium to now, where I feel, at least as an American, I've witnessed so much iniquity perpetrated by us to them that in this weird way, it's like, I don't know, like we were saying, like there's two skeletons inter intermingling with each other. I feel like that analogy is very um, apt to right now, because I don't know, I, I don't know who the victor is. I don't know who lost. I don't know who the perpetrator is. It all feels like one miasma of, of iniquity. And, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to like really parse out like what's happening right now. And like, are we the haunted house or is Afghanistan the haunted land? Oh, oh, what a good question. I suppose we, um, by pulling out uh, with, predictable consequences um, we uh, enabled the um, the haunted force or the the evil force that haunts the lives now of, of every um, Afghan uh, and most particularly the women women of, of Afghanistan uh, for whom the Taliban have nothing but contempt sort of sadistic contempt yeah I wonder if the haunting in, in any case, you could say happens when a kind of cover story of reason, you know, or, or like a daylight story becomes unsustainable, you know? So in this case, you could say like, like this, you know, ghosts of Afghanistan return yes. when the American, you know, occupation or kind of pseudo government, it's not even that it collapses, but it's like revealed to have not even been real in the first place. You know, and the same thing happens just in this sort of night side of the mind when we realize that, you know, what we consider to be the, the daylight aspects of, of existence are always, you know, either illusory or at least like completely uh, uh, partial, you know, are, are never the whole story. Yes, I, I think that's a very good uh, analogy that, uh, that it, it's, you know, it, it, it's night time in uh, Afghanistan now. It is a time of nightmare in Afghanistan now. Um, and uh, there had been some kind of, well, some kind of daylight, at least when the Taliban were, were held back by the presence of American forces. Yeah, and, and maybe that's the nature of, of hauntings. You know, if I think of the way that, you know, Franco returns in, in your new book, uh, Last Days in oh, Paper yes. Square, that it's like, you know, I think the kind of delicious ambiguity, at least from a, an artistic point of view, is that, you know, on the one hand, you get another chance, right? Like you, you know, the past returns and you sort of can deal with it or you sort of can confront it, but also it returns in some horrible and perverted form that you're never sure 
if it is really the past or if it's just something else entirely. That fascinates me too, that um, uh, how the past in certain individuals, usually the individuals I put in my books, at the center of my books, um, uh, are, have great difficulty in dealing with the um, uh, experiences, the, the, the forces, the persons um, uh, that have never properly been um, sort of recognized and uh, put to rest. I suppose it's trauma is what we're talking about. And uh, um, I, I find I find the whole idea of trauma and the, the you know, the, the terrible nightmare force uh, power it has over those who suffer trauma uh, and, and cannot uh, somehow displace the effects of trauma. Well, what about the idea of impotence? Because I also feel like this is something that a lot of your characters have, whether it is being like sexually compromised in some way or like being a frustrated artist or just being compromised in the sense that you use as a way to kind of shoehorn them into this like gothic sensibility. And this, I think, also relates to Afghanistan, which is a topic we can <laughs> I think yeah. we can move away from. But I also feel like it's it certainly a festival of impotence in, in a certain regard. All around. Yes. Yeah, indeed. I mean, well, I suppose as far as I'm concerned that, that um uh, characters who are at bay um, through forces that they don't understand and can't control, uh, psychological forces in particular, um, but have always been of, of greatest interest, you know, in, in the sense that uh, I think it was Naipaul said that um, uh, uh, fiction is crisis. Um, and is that, that is the sort of crisis that, it, that interests me. Um, those, those are the sort of uh, sort of antagonisms, the sort of complications um, that uh, I think only the novel can probably do justice to. Uh, and uh, I find that the uh, products of our own minds, uh, to me, are the most uh, fascinating uh, of, of such. To me, the idea of the gothic which is obviously infused with the idea of hauntings is so directly related to romance it always seems to either be the element of unrequited romance or there's this kind of romance that's just so strong that you know if you follow you can never come back from but I think in the context of this conversation what you're talking about there's also an unspent energy and that unspent energy is transforms over time into something macabre or something seedy and i don't know i wonder if that's like something that you think about when you're writing these characters and these situations especially looking at our world in this wider lens that seems to share this <laughs> impotent vision of unspent energy yeah oh, oh certainly unspent energy and um that energy uh, sort of becoming um, transformed within within the mind uh, as as it has to find a release has to be displaced in some way. Um, uh, I, I was thinking about the novel I wrote about from the point of view of a schizophrenic, uh, which is Spider, uh, who is uh, very much haunted by the smell of gas 
Uh, And uh, this is something that uh, by the end of the book has been traced back to the, uh, the night that his mother died. And I think we see clearly then how gas and the smell of gas has taken hold in uh, this this character's brain. And um, despite all the uh, craziness that ensues and uh, all the attempts to somehow uh, displace or to, uh, to, 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 to hide, to forget, to conceal what, what the root of this obsession with gas, amongst other things, um, what, what, um, you know, what the origin of of that sort of complex is, um, and uh, well, um, I suppose you could, you could generalise that and, and and think of um, oh, colonialism as the um, you know the, the the original sin of uh, of of uh, modern history. And that what we're seeing in Afghanistan is possibly um, the after effects of um, the original evil of colonialism, first by the British, then the attempt by the Russians, and then the Americans, all to go in and uh, uh, somehow repress what uh, needed repressing in Afghanistan. But, of course, the repressed always returns. Especially when there's a spiritual component. Um. Well, you mean the the religious element that uh, that is in this sort of extreme Islamic uh, uh, morality that the Taliban Absolutely. are imposing upon? But, upon I, but I also think the Americans also have, if not a religious uh, context to what they're doing, there is some sort of whatever constitutes spirituality in America at this time also seems to be at play. I think there's the, um, you know, there's the capitalistic money component, but then there's also just this war of ideology that they think that they can go there and just change the the identity and the actual like psychic fabric of this place that doesn't want to be changed. And there's, I don't know, there's something very intense about that that seems to not ever be taken into account by Americans in general. And is motivated by by mission. I mean, maybe in every, uh, you know, when an ideology or a spirituality gets deep enough, it becomes invisible, it, you know, and, and the conscious motivation for an action is always that you think you're doing what's naturally right rather than what's, you know, defined yes. by your ideology, no matter what that may be, right? In that respect, all sort of colonial adventures are... Um... Uh, uh, very much uh, framed in in terms of um, uh, improvement and and the bringing of civilization and the bringing of law um, and uh, material improvement and 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 so forth, um, but always always they backfire. It seems always there is violence down the road, and some we're seeing it again now. Um, and there's a real return of the repressed in terms of, you know, extractive colonialism, you know, that if you're literally digging up oil or digging up opium or digging up, you know, minerals or, you know, whatever is being extracted in every colonial venture, you know, this verges back into the Gothic, I think, because it's like you're, you know, in a physical sense, stirring up some spirit that is always going to overwhelm you. And that when you leave or when you're defeated or when you're chased out, you know, something lingers, right? Some haunting 
maybe the same way in like a um, Bronte type castle or country estate. It's like something has been dug up that's just there mm. that no one no one can <laughs> yeah. put to rest, but also no one can live with. <laughs> right. Well, I see. I see what you're you're uh, proposing here. It's a sort of great sort of gothic uh, uh, theory of uh, human history. Yes. Um, which, uh, well, I'm all in favour of that. It, it'd be a be a big book once uh, once it's finished. <laughs> we're, we're writing it right now. <laughs> we need it right now. We need Edward Gibbons to come. The ghost of Edward Gibbons will write it. <laughs> I think we're doing it yes. together. This is going to be a group project. <laughs> it, you know, and it yeah. relates it relates to trauma too. I think because it's you know, I mean, colonialism is certainly a trauma or, or occupation, both for the occupied and in a less sympathetic, but perhaps equally traumatic way for the defeated occupier in the sense of, you know, you're growing up at the end of the British empire and us living now at what certainly looks like the end of the American empire. You know, it's something that that I was wondering about, you know, when you mentioned trauma before is, I think there's a kind of interesting ambiguity in the sense that on the one hand, if we think about spider or, uh, the narrator in, in the new book or, or Dr. Haggard or, you know, many of your characters, you know, trauma is experienced as a negative uh, idea, obviously, that something terrible has happened to you that you can't overcome. But I think on, yeah. on the same wavelength or at the same time, there's a way that it's also a life force, you know, that you could say, and I mean, the Freudian idea, I guess, is that, you know, birth is the real trauma and therefore like being alive is being traumatized. Huh. And certainly if you take something like, last days in Cleaver Square, it's bittersweet, yeah. right? Because, you know, putting the trauma to rest is uncoincidentally a death ritual. I, I suppose it is, um, uh, in the sense that uh, the book is built around uh, uh, two old men, um, one of whom dies in the course of the book. In fact, it is, it is the, the, the sort of the last days of uh, General Franco, which um, um, uh, produced the disturbance uh, in uh, Francis uh, McNulty uh, and begin to uh, sort of unseat, disturb, and uh, um, uh, arouse that which had been repressed, which was the sort of the nightmare that was uh, Spain and that one particular act for which he can never forgive himself. Um, And uh, it seems just... It seems a, a, a small step, but a very gothic step to uh, then sort of personify the, the um, that, that material, that dark material, uh, and, and and put Franco in his back garden, even though Franco is in, in reality dying dying in a hospital in Madrid, um, uh, and, and that may be the, the sort of genius of the gothic that you. Uh, uh, certainly, you know, reading Wuthering Heights, the genius of the creation of of, uh, of, of Heathcliff is, is, is enormously impressive. But um, uh, I, I think it is what fiction is good for is for, uh, for personifying uh, and uh, uh, you know, sort of packing into one 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 particular character um, all of these sorts of forces we're talking about. That uh, uh, that uh, either are, are sort of subject to to the the return of the repressed, or are in some way caused the, the repression to occur in the first place. Yeah, and, it, and it need, is, need the return, right? Are are craving the repressed 
to return so that they can see it for what it is. Right. Well, yes, maybe or maybe not. I mean, sometimes we uh, we don't uh, want to look at that material at all and um, are uh, powerless to prevent it as, as it uh, surges back up. Wondering if either have ever uh, read a, a, an author called Sheridan Le Fanu. I have not. Mm-mm. I, I've heard that name recently, actually, but but I, I haven't read it. He's. Uh, I, I'm just thinking about him uh, because I've read a couple of his, or reread a couple of his novels, and he wrote some fine uh, short horror stories. I don't know if you, you're familiar with Green Tea. Mm. It's often in in you know anthologies of uh, of sort of you know the best horror stories of the century and such. But he, he was he was writing in the 19th century and. Um, uh, there is uh, his sense of the return of the repressed is, is wonderful. I just finished one called Wilder's Hand, and it's about a man who, oh, has a very complex uh, uh, history, uh, and um, uh, in, in fact is is involved in all sorts of uh, dubious activities with regard to. Uh, his family, another family, money, marriage, all sorts of things. But the the, the title Wilder's Hand is he he has been he has been murdered and buried in a shallow grave, but somehow his hands have broken through the soil, uh, and it's it's this dramatic image of a hand that has risen from from below, um, and it is the fate of the man who who has destroyed his family and seized his fortune that uh, in a moment when he is fleeing his pursuers his horse stumbles on that hand throws the rider down to the ground and then and then collapses on top of him and the man is mortally wounded and in this way Wilder has um, uh, found uh, found revenge and in a way justice uh, after death um, and uh, it's once you've read the novel and seen why it's called Wilder's Hand, because this event only occurs in the last um, 15 or 20 pages, that, um, you know, you, you get you know, the sort of heart of the Gothic sort of material, the image of the hand coming from below in order to destroy his enemy after death. And it's like that no grave can be deep enough. <laughs> Something will always come up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> even the grave of empire. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yes. Maybe especially that, right? It reminds yes. me, you know, when you were when you were talking about Heathcliff before, and and then a moment ago about, you know, the power of the Gothic and maybe a fiction in general being to present these kind of hyper concentrated images of something that is otherwise diffuse in real life. You know, it, it reminded me of this article yes. I read once about uh, David Lynch's Lost Highway. And I think that this article oh, yes. just expressed something very lucidly that is true about Lynch and about maybe the purpose of art in general, when it said that, you know, the role of art and maybe of fantasy and dreams in any sort of imaginative realm is never to actually relieve pain or to solve anything, but it is to make the problem more clear. So that in your, you uh-huh. know, if you take Last, Last Highway as an example, it's like in the kind of real world, you know, there's some problem in the marriage or each one fears the other's cheating on them or there's some secret or, you know, there's a kind of like vague but palpable disturbance. And then yes. in, in the fantasy or in the sort of parallel world that Lost Highway enters, 
the problem is still there, but now, you know, those two people are split into four, right? So the wife literally is dating <laughs> two versions of the guy and the guy is dating two versions of, and so on, you know, so it doesn't solve the problem, but it just like makes each aspect its own person, which clarifies the nature of it. Okay. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, and again, I mean, I'm a little bit obsessed with Wuthering Heights, but uh, it, it's a novel that um, uh, begins with the very passionate, uh, impossibly passionate relationship of Heathcliff and Cathy. Um, and it takes us to a point where Cathy has died. Um, her, uh, Heathcliff is begging her to haunt him because he cannot live without her. And meanwhile... Uh, he has had a daughter called Catherine, and Heathcliff has married elsewhere and has a son called Linton. And we begin to follow this second generation, uh, the dynamic between the daughter of one of the lovers uh, and the son of the other, uh, and see the uh, same pattern begin to play out in the second generation, which I think is what your... your um, uh, you're, you're suggesting here that uh, um, you know this hyper concentration of, uh, 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 of of these particular forces sort of permitted to to go on in time beyond the span of the lives of the uh, protagonists mm. and, and mirror what had, had occurred before, uh, which I hadn't really noticed in Wuthering Heights. Uh, I'd noticed it, but I hadn't realised how, how how brilliant a mirroring it it was. Of, of the, the sort of the main uh, you know central story of, of the of the doomed of the doomed love love of uh, uh, Heathcliff and Cathy. Anyway, that was just maybe uh, the you know you have that phrase beg, beg someone begging a ghost to haunt them. You, you know, yes. and I feel like you know I wonder if part of the essence of the Gothic is that we're stuck between being unable to remember in the sense that the love is lost or that, you know, the glory days are lost or something, but then also being unable to forget in that some trace of it is still here and that we can't move on, but we also uh -huh. can't return, <laughs> you know, so we're, we're pulled <laughs> and, and almost like we, you know, as the protagonist or as the reader or as the writer become ghostly. It's not just the ghost is the other, it's like the ghost becomes the self. Uh-huh, yes, 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 a sort of, sort of stasis is created that uh, is uh, well I suppose isn't that the essence of the ghost that it, it is it is stuck uh, it is unable to move on I mean and, and uh, I'm not sure what the function of the haunting is but uh, but the ghost um, uh, the, the ghost wants to be exorcised and it, and it's uh, Maybe his tragedy is, is, it, is that it can't be exorcised. It is forced to continue to dwell in, I don't know, the old house or or under the floorboards, as, as often happens in uh, sort of Victorian gothics, where uh, there is uh, there is an uh, an entity uh, under the floorboards. Often it might be an aborted fetus, but it's there, and it's uh, the spiritual. Um, emanations that it produces is quite enough to create, you know, a thoroughly haunted house. Absolutely. But I think the only way to deal with this and something that I think you do so well is <laughs> that the character that's in this state of being haunted in this situation almost has to be obsessively 
passionate about something. There's like a desperation for this haunting to be animated, for it to come alive, to for it to like emerge out of this gothic state. So I do wonder like, yeah. what do you think that causes that? Because it is funny that there is this corollary between stasis and then this overly animated, spinning your wheels in place, obsessive passion to get it out. And it's imbued with romance and sexuality and art and creation. Yet there's something yeah. dead and almost like zombie-like about the whole situation that uh, is yeah, incredibly yeah, like, romantic. And I don't know what that is, but it's like something that I love and something that I always get out of your books and I always return to. Well, I, I guess they're the sort of the displaced energies that uh, that are, are are not being directed at the real source of the uh, of, of the angst uh, uh, or or that whatever it is that is the agent of the haunting. Um, but I, I think the more vivid the the life, um, uh, the passion, the 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 work um, of the character, the the. Well, the better the fiction, but frankly, you know, you, you, um, uh, I remember I may have said it in, in, in class, David, but I tend to say it, say it quite regularly is, is that the one thing that the writer needs to learn is you cannot bore your reader. That is the, that is fatal, um, which, um, then imposes upon you the necessity of, of, uh, having as, as much vitality in your novels, even if um, paradoxically, what you're concerned with is matters like um, you know corruption and death mm. and haunting and trauma. Um, but uh, you you need a great blast of life sustaining all of these forces. Um, uh, otherwise, um, your reader will just you know toss the book across the room, and you that's that's what, that's it's all over. I mean, I wonder if those zones, you, you know, like to somebody who doesn't have a macabre or, or a morbid sensibility, from their point of view, maybe the kinds of zones that you just mentioned seem dead, you know, but I, but I think like all of us, I, I think it's safe to say share a morbid sensibility. <laughs> and that if, if, you, if you have that, if you're oriented in that way, it's not actually because you're attracted to death as death. But rather because you see it as a source of vitality. Yeah, I, I, I think so, um, and, and I think what the right, certainly the Gothic writer has to do is is perform um, a complicated act of seduction, um, because um, you know the number of readers who are addicted to the Gothic in itself is is mm, uh, probably uh, more limited than we we like to believe. But uh, if you want to go beyond. Uh, um, the gothicists, um, you need to try, kind of seduce the reader into believing that what they're reading about is, is believable characters in a believable world. Uh, and then if you, you just begin to touch in, touch in a touch of the, uh, of, of the morbid, let's say, or, or a, you know, a, a ghoul at the end of the garden, but within a world uh, that is otherwise, um, you know, a family, a daughter, a father, a sister, living in a house with a garden uh, and a cat, um, and and bringing them to life if you can, um, and then there's just this sidebar. I don't know the the, the notion that the, the the ghost of General Franco is is in the garden, and 
by Christ, it is in my bedroom. Um, and um, if you know, I, I've had a lot of people uh, who don't, I think, really read the Gothic have um, been very um, warm about uh, Cleaver Square. Uh, and I think it is because the, uh, you know, the Gothic element is is is, is very much um, sort of subdued within an air of normality. And an old man whose voice is recognisable, you know, he's beginning to lose it a bit. He's got all sorts of foibles. Um, and um, it's it, it emotionally, I think, quite quite alive. So there's a lot of life, but but within that, there is this weird event that is occurring uh, in his garden. Um, and uh, I think that's how that's how the Gothic can can sort of reach out and seduce or convert those who would uh, otherwise not um, be drawn to it. And where were you when you were writing The Last Days of Cleaver Square? Because I wonder if in any way, because I know that you used to live in New York and you returned to Europe after many years away. Was it in some way the process of doing that during the pandemic? Yeah, I, I, I finished it sort of just around the time of the, the pandemic. Um, and I'd written it mostly in New York. Um, and the house in question, the, uh, Francis's house, is mm -hmm. the house I sometimes live in with my wife in London. It's my wife's house, mm. and it's on Kennington Road. Uh, and, and Cleaver Square is a real place. Um, it's about, you know, a 10-minute walk from that house. Uh, and there is a pub in that uh, square. It, it's not called the, um, the Earl of... Um, I forgot what I called it. It's, I think it's called the Prince of Wales, but that that was uh, that had to go. <laughs> you can find it on Google Earth, though. I found it. <laughs> you found it. I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, did you see photographs of it? Uh, no, I went on Google Earth and I just like explored oh. the square and I found it. Oh, okay. Okay, got you. Yeah. There's a little cyber stalking on my part. <laughs> Patrick, we, we saw we saw you in the window. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was there. <laughs> yes, I was there. Hang, yes, clinging to the bar. Um, <laughs> good. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I've I've always thought that um, you know if uh, uh, there's a good principle uh, in writing is to. Um, if you can use that which comes to hand easily, um, then do. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't know that there's any great um, uh, benefit in um, uh, sort of reinventing, um, let's say, a London street or a London house or a London pub or or whatever. If you've if you've got one at hand, and uh, I've certainly spent enough time in that part of London to be able to summon it without too much difficulty. Um, and uh, so I can, I can uh, uh, sort of then create a world that to me is, is, is real and believable uh, and then begin to introduce um, uh, the, um, uh, you know, the true, uh, the true point of the story uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, the ghost of uh, Franco uh, appearing in this rather, rather quiet London garden. Um, and 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 I possibly get some humour out of that at the same time as um, suggesting something uh, that uh, 
tells us what what it is within Francis McNulty's mind, his past, um, what he has repressed, that is now beginning to assert itself, beginning to return uh, when he is forced to come to terms with the fact that Franco is is, is about to die. You know, th- this is something that w- we talked about a tiny bit in our, our ghost conversation last week. Um, but I think, you know, something fascinating throughout your work is this relation between what I could broadly call like the North and the South, you know, or the Protestant world and the Catholic world, you know, whether it's, uh, uh-huh. you know, Latin America in Port Mungo, whether it's, I know uh-huh. we've talked, we've talked a lot about uh, the popularity of your work in Italy. And then of course the role of Spain in in the new book. And, you know, how is, how is that either in terms of the Spanish civil war in general, or in terms of the, you know, spiritual relationship between say the, you know, Gothic Bronte influenced world of England versus this more, you know, hotter, kind of wetter, more passionate world of of Southern Europe or of of South America? Mm. It was, again, it was was much more um, uh, pragmatic. I wasn't, I wasn't um, so much thinking uh, about those oppositions between the, you know, the cold Protestant North and the hot Catholic South. Um, it really was, um, you know, the explanation um, is, um, is 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 not very exotic, really. I, you know, I, I've been coming to Spain in the summers for a long time, and I thought, time I time I did something with this. You know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a novelist first and foremost. What what am I going to do with, you know, what I know about Spain, what I've seen of Spain, my familiarity with this particular bit of Spain, and uh, and then I thought. Well, what's the history? Where's the history? What do I want to know? Uh, and then I thought the Civil War, yeah, Civil War. Uh, and then that's not so long ago. There still could be in the late 20th century. Uh, well, Franco was at the end of his life, but there were there'd be Englishmen and Americans and uh, Germans and uh, Poles and all sorts of people who went to Spain to fight fascism. Um, and, uh, and and right from there, I moved to the uh, Englishman who uh, is uh, in his well into his seventies, and um, uh, is uh, thought. Now, what happens to him when he uh, begins to understand that his the man who uh, uh, whose actions uh, were instrumental in taking him to Spain when he was young uh, that that he is about to die? What sort of complexity of feelings would be aroused there. It wouldn't be simple, was my thought, but how would it be complicated? And 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 with that sort of a question, um, I find um, I, I can I can begin to write. There's a sort of, you know, there's a good knotty question to be answered here, and I don't know the answer, but uh, I can uh, probably get a novel out of um, uh, trying to discover what, what the answer is to this um, sort of predicament that Francis is put into, that he's now got to think about, remember what happened in Spain, what happened with Doc Roscoe, the one man he ever loved. Um, and um, there's, there's, there's enough here. You know, give him a family, give him a cat, give him a house and a garden. And, uh, and slowly, slowly the sort of lineaments of a novel uh, uh, begin to appear. And there's enough stuff there. There's enough juice 
to to you know to get you through um you know a couple of hundred pages and 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 there you have it and just to like backtrack a little bit maybe for the listeners can you give us some context in the spanish civil war which is in very in many ways like what sets this trajectory off and it's what led to world war ii it's also what accelerated the idea of modernism and and postmodern art i i suppose the simple version um is that uh, in the early 1930s um there is a sort of a, a liberal republican government in spain but there is also um as as in many parts of europe um a sort of a, a growing uh, sort of fascist movement, um, uh, which is, is is utterly opposed to to uh, liberalism, and um, uh, and sees those societies, those governments, as, as soft, permissive, uh, and um, in, in some way antithetical to um, you know the sense of uh, in the early days, fascism was was about order and honor and sacrifice. And fourth, uh, and um, so that conflict is is coming to life, uh, and the government in Spain is relatively weak, and so when Franco um, begins to uh, pull together uh, many of the officers whom he knows and who uh, are of, of of a similar frame of mind, uh, he is able without too much difficulty to. Um, uh, to cross over from from uh, North Africa with a large force of uh, Moroccan soldiers um, and uh, form an army in the south of Spain that will then move up through Spain uh, towards Madrid um, and uh, they have to fight their way but they're uh, they they easily overwhelm the opposition that is thrown against them. Um, and are successful in um, uh, basically destroying the Republican government and putting Franco uh, in as the um, uh, the leader, the ruler of, of Spain. And this happens all about 1930. It's, it, this plays out between 36 and 39. This, this this great march from south to north of Franco's troops, um, where, where they're you know a great deal of, of, of violence and killing and uh, and so forth. Um, and then Franco it, it, it takes over and, and um, instills a totalitarian, authoritarian government and keeps it going for 40 years, unlike you know, Mussolini and Hitler, who both failed in their attempt to do the same thing. Uh, I, think, I think that's roughly it. Uh, and you see Spain, you know, the, the uh, various... Uh, groups in Spain sort of falling to one side or the other. The church, for example, and uh, uh, the big capitalists, they, they were on Franco's side, whereas the, the intellectuals, the press, um, uh, were, were opposed to Franco. Um, and uh, as you say, it, uh, it in a way was the um, prelude to, to World War Two. Uh, and in fact, you know, Hitler was able to use the Spanish Civil War to, you know, try out um, uh, his, uh, the Luftwaffe, for example. I mean, the, the great, um, you know, the, the, the bombing of, of, of the Spanish cities was largely done by German uh, German pilots and German planes. 
I, I read somewhere that uh, Antifa, you know, anti-fascist, this term that we hear all the time now, was actually coined yeah. in the resistance to Franco, you know, with people like Orwell and Hemingway and, and you know, so, so many right. other like, yeah. less famous people. But that idea that, you know, if fascism starts anywhere, it will spread everywhere, you know, and that that concept is, you know, I wonder, I wonder actually uh -huh. that, you know, even though the actual events of something like the Spanish Civil War are longer ago now, obviously, than they <laughs> have ever been before, but that in a sense, they feel closer than they did, say, in the 90s or the early 2000s. You know, I mean, we've talked a lot about the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, but I, I wonder if there was a moment. Oh, yeah. Right, right. No, I, I tell one of the... Um, uh, one of the of the main motives in writing this was that I, I and let me see when would it have been? It would have been about nineteen ninety six. The, the fall of ninety six, we get a new president, uh, whose name I don't need to tell you. And I think, what can I? What what you know? How can you deal with a character like this sort of in in fiction? What was a novelist got to say about Donald Trump? Um, and uh, I was reading sort of a, a, about Franco and I began to see similar qualities in Franco uh, to those of Trump. There's a sort of a grandiosity and an enormous vanity, uh, uh, a great cruelty, a ruthlessness, um, uh, a violence even. Uh, and I thought these characters, these characters, you know, they do resemble one another. You know, I saw in Trump what you might well see in Certainly, Franco. I don't know enough about Mussolini, but I just read the new Hitler biography, uh, and there is the, that uh, those same qualities are there too. You know, the ferocity of the ambition, um, the ruthlessness with which is pursued, the enormous egoism uh, of the uh, of the leader, um, and his willingness to do anything to to get what he wants, and. Um, so I thought, well, I could take this character. I don't know if anybody would recognize him by the time I'm finished with him, but if, I, if I've got Franco on the page, I can at least sort of address uh, this this sort of personality that arose then and has just arisen has risen again uh, in in the United States in 2016. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating yeah. also when, I don't know about if this is true of Franco, but with many kind of extreme populist figures who come to power selling like a hyper clarified fantasy version of, you know, true national belonging. They're mm -hmm. often outsiders themselves, right? So if you think of, you know, Napoleon, like <laughs> famously, like barely spoke French, right? You know, it was Corsican, Italian, you know, Bonaparte yeah. and then took over France. Uh, Stalin yeah. was was Georgian and, and took over Russia. Hitler was Trump. Austrian. And you have Trump and, from Queens, and, New York, speaking for the for Middle America. And Trump's the most interesting yeah. because he's a double outsider, right? That he's an outsider to Middle America because he's a New Yorker, and he's an outsider to New York, you know, fancy society because he's a guy from Queens in the real estate market. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, I'm I'm sure that's the, the, the case. It's very clear in in uh, Hitler's biography, and uh, uh, Franco too was. Um, uh, yeah, he he was, you know, he had his problems he, even with the within the army structure that uh, that he he spent his early years in. Um, 
you know, not 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 an establishment figure by any any means, but able when the time came to to uh, to fire up his fellow officers and um, uh, with with a certain sort of I don't know a certain sort of attraction, you know, and. Uh, uh, I mean, I've read this about Hitler that he, that he, he, the force of his personality uh, was such that that he was able to seduce almost anybody who came within his ken. Um, there was a, a very rare human quality there, and and the, the, the you know the pity of it is, of course, that uh, he, he was mad, and that's probably another aspect of these characters. They're all mad. Well, it's interesting because it almost seems like the madness comes from this specific time. And I'm, I'm even thinking, as you know, as a corollary to the Spanish Civil War, so right now, where we seem to exist in an undead world where clearly the British and American empires in some ways are over, but they haven't died and they haven't decayed. But they're in this almost like zombie era, which in a weird way almost feels like this new gothic way of living. Does it seem that way to you as well? Well, I, I listen. I it it hadn't occurred to me we're living living in a sort of new gothic age. But I, you know, I yeah, I I, I remember when I first came to New York, I, I had this sense that uh, uh, that we, we were living in a, in a decaying society, and that it was right. To, for for gothic exploitation of of an artistic nature, um, and uh, I mean New York at that time was falling apart. You know the ruined buildings and the uh, you know state of the subways and the graffiti. But I would say it's worse uh, now. I'd rather see ruined buildings over banks and fucking CVSs on every corner. <laughs> well, um, uh, I don't know. I mean. Uh, New York is certainly um, a wealthier city now, uh, not not in every every corner of it, of course. But uh... I mean, I wonder if the thing about you know the comparison between, say, you know, seventies and eighties New York of you know taxi driver and Basquiat and you know junkies and graffiti and everything, versus this moment now of CVSs and banks everywhere, is like we've exited an age of overt squalor. But now uh-huh. we've entered we've entered an age of like power without authority, you know. So like these whole systems of, you know, and, and like the yep. American you know pseudo government in Afghanistan is a good example also of something that like sort of held a kind of apparent power, but clearly didn't have any like genuine legitimacy, you know. And I wonder if that describes the zombie age a little bit. That like we're in this moment where uh-huh. the old ways of yeah. doing things are there still, but they kind of feel dead in a sense. Right. Well, would you say that we're we're in a crisis of legitimacy, which is a term I remember from oh the uh, the German philosopher Habermas, Jürgen Habermas. He talked about uh, the the 20th century, the the, uh, the West having a, a crisis of legitimacy. I read this really interesting book recently called uh, "The Revolt of the Public," which basically talked about. I mean, it talked about Trump, but but even before that, you know. Arab Spring, Tea Party, uh, Indignados in Spain, Cinque Stelle in, in Italy, um, various movements in Israel, even the first Obama campaign, you know, a lot of these things that were Occupy Wall Street, obviously, as like populist internet mediated movements, right, you know, against not not even really right or left wing, but just against like old forms of 
consolidated authority that relied on, speaking of channels, you know, relied on like many, many fewer channels of media. And I think something really brilliant that this book said was that the more channels of media that open due to the internet, the more the legitimacy story of any ruling body diminishes. And it doesn't even matter, you know, what's true or what's false or what's good or what's right. bad. It's just the, le- you know, you lose control of the narrative essentially, you know, and as soon as that happens, you're bound to appear illegitimate, especially if you oh, can't uh, answer the demands of the people, which, which none of these, these forms really can, you know? Okay. Oh, that's interesting. So now, uh, is this a good thing or a bad thing or just a thing? Well, I think what this author, who he's like a Cuban ex-CIA analyst, you know, so he's always looked through a lot of this data. And I think he would say, certainly it's just a thing and that it can be a good thing. You know, it's a cusp point, he would say, you know, so it's a good thing if there's, if someone comes up with an ability to respond to it, and it's a bad thing if people keep trying the old ways against it, which are just increasingly bound to fail, I think is what he would say. Uh-huh. But what do you do then with, for example, um, the problem of the anti-vaxxers who say, you know, this this um, this vaccine has, hasn't been tested thoroughly enough, uh, I, I'm not getting it, and are impervious to the argument that as, as long as you are not vaccinated, you present a danger not only to yourself, but to me. It's it's very hard. I mean, I think what what this author would say, and which may be impossible at this point, but would be you know, you can't just demonize people for not trusting, you know, messaging like that, but you have to go through some much deeper process of restoring trust. And that's really hard. You know, it's like, how do you make people trust pharmaceutical companies that have lied to them and have exploited them? Yeah. How how do you redirect culture? Yeah. That's the deep question, I think. But uh, what do you do with the question of, well, um, we kind of know what is information and what is disinformation. And when um, you want to say, but that is that is disinformation. We, we in fact, uh, do not have records of people having uh, uh, strong adverse uh, reactions to this vaccine or even dying. Um, uh, that, that data simply does not exist. But they saw it on YouTube, and so for them it does exist, and so therefore they will not um, uh, get the vaccine that would protect me from their virus, for example. There is such a thing as disinformation. There is, I mean, it, this post-truth thing is, is is very bizarre. That sort of my truth is as good as your truth. And, and it has something to do with like a two-way, the idea that information, and this also can be good and bad, but that information is now participatory. You know, so like for most <laughs> of the 20th century, it was like you, as an average person, you were just absorbing information, which which mm-hmm. meant that you were easily propagandized, but also that you were... You know, if something true is being presented, you sort of would just receive it, right? Whereas now everything is two-way. So every person is an information consumer and producer, which just creates like a system of kind of absurd complexity. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Well, would you agree that um, if uh, our educational systems were adequate, that we could all... um, think our way through to clarity and truth uh, and not be seduced by what might be called disinformation. But I think that's so tough right now because everybody has their own version of truth. So it's kind of hard. I, I don't know what would it take 
obviously I think science is a great place to start, but what would get everybody yeah. on the same, on the same level? And in, you know, just in regards to this conversation, it's like, what is the difference between Gothic and horror? And I think right now we're living in the time of the Gothic because of this very question that we're talking about, that we, we can't even agree on a certain type of truth, whether it affects our lives prolongs it, shortens it, increases our health, decreases it. We're just in this like, in this stasis. But then I think in the past, we were in a state of horror about it because we just knew that if we didn't do what we were told or if we didn't do what we thought would bring us to the next level, there was just this manifestation of fear. But right now Mm -hmm. we're just in this other place, this, this place of aching and I think in the context of your book, this place of aching is is usually like tied to romance. And this is like something that I <laughs> I wish I could tie my the same um, sensibility to right now. But I think right now it's like it's it, it's tied to a sense of aching within ambiguity and that this is just where we're going to have to exist for a certain amount of time. Like I don't see where we're going to get out of this and and, and, and move forward forward in a cohesive state and and, and have we the, uh, the the political structures i mean is de- democracy adequate to this problem of, of the post-truth society um i mean that is, that is that is maybe what what has been most uh, striking about the united states uh, i mean because the afghanistan crisis is something else but um the enormous sort of rift that are appearing in American society in terms of, to put it most simply, you know, the, the, the right to vote um, and, and how that can be um, uh, sabotaged uh, by a, a quasi-legal means or political means. Um, and and the, the, the great disjunction between, the, you know, the South and the North, between the rich and the poor. I mean, Trump exacerbated all of these fault lines in American society, it seems. Um, but they were they pre-existed Trump. He simply aggravated what was there. And now we're seeing, a, I think, a, a very divided nation. Are we, are we not? No, absolutely. Um, and, and on this train of thought, like, how would you differentiate the Gothic from the horror? Because I do think it fits into this thing that we're talking about in terms of how these two states of being seem to run society and they seem to run even media and news. I mean, you you watch news and you try to get in a, a grasp of what is happening in the world and you're either being scared into a certain complacency that manifests new type of fear or you're in a more gothic state, which I think we're in now where we're just looking towards the ghosts of the past plus this current state of just like, um, ambiguous fear about disease that might come back to haunt us, that might get us sick. And not to say that any of this is like not true, but I, I would say the granddaddy of Gothic fiction, one of my favorite horror Gothic writers. I would just love to hear what you have to say about it. Oh, oh, Lordy. Um, <laughs> not to put you uh, on a spot or anything, you know, easy question. <laughs> well, <laughs> Um, yeah, um, it's, it's, it, I, I like your distinction between Gothic and horror, and uh, I, I'm not sure how, uh, the Gothic has always 
I, I've had a very narrow de- definition of the Gothic as as a you know a form of um, really as yeah as, as a sort of a cultural formation as a way of uh, of writing fiction as a sort of a, a set of furniture that one requires for for um, a piece of fiction that will um, enable it to be seen and read as as gothic. Um, and I suppose there was a time when um, I did have um, sort of larger aspirations for the idea of the Gothic uh, and, and was able to project it onto um, political behavior, uh, technology, uh, aspects of the world that um, uh, did not necessarily uh, have to do with um, uh, telling a story with a particular mood and a particular sort of characters and with particular plot lines. And um, I think I began to then see, well, if the Gothic is, is limited in that way um, as, as a, a genre of, um, uh, of fiction primarily, um, how can uh, how can I expand it? What can I do with it uh, whilst re- remaining sort of true to it? Because that's where my heart lies. How can I enlarge upon it? What, what areas of life can I uh, uh, introduce into that, that gothic frame? And what came most easily, I think, was to do with um, uh, personal behavior, feelings, emotions, love, hate, death. Um, and I somehow lost the ambitions that I'd had as, as a as a young Gothic writer to uh, to somehow you know impose a Gothic vision uh, onto the you know the breadth of society as as you're suggesting now, Paul. And uh, I thought I thought uh, I, so. I suppose maybe my canvas um, grew a bit smaller, but uh, I hope it grew a bit sort of richer as I was able to. Uh, you know, explore different aspects of human nature. Um, but I sort of uh, um, uh, rather, um, uh, I think I rather let the, let the world go to the hell in a handcart if I could just be left alone to um, uh, write, write the novels I wanted to write. And um, I would keep abreast of it, uh, but I would uh, keep abreast of it in terms of the, the you know, the, the media that, that I trusted, um, and I have to say, I've always trusted the New York Times. Why should I trust the New York Times? Many people see the New York Times as a, a great force of misinformation, um, as, as the voice of the establishment, etc. I think, from my own personal point of view, I've, I've become less radical in, in, in that regard, and um, uh, and uh, I think the Gothic uh, and so psychological. Uh, applications of it are what will interest me more than, um, you know, social or global applications of the term. But I, I defend your right to see the Gothic as characterizing um, this this epoch in human history. Um, I think that's it's, it's fascinating to to go at it that way. I just I just wouldn't know how to translate that into fiction, which has become more and more. Um, my, uh, you know, my predilection as, as the years have gone by. It's um, I've become more deeply in- interested in the writing of novels and um, uh, and less, I guess, engaged in the uh, uh, you know the course of the 21st century somehow. 
has there been a circumstance or an occurrence in your past that really compelled you to investigate this atmosphere of being haunted so thoroughly? <laughs> um, well, uh, it, I mean, the, the, the simplest in, uh, response to that is, is that um, um, I'm, I'm the son of a psych, uh, forensic psychiatrist. And, um, you know, I, I'm just, I've moved all my books to Spain and I've just been unpacking them. And I've come across some of my father's books in there, which... With um, uh, uh, with titles, and these were these were the tools of his trade. These were uh, sort of clinical books um, uh, written by um, distinguished practitioners or theorists, and they would have titles like "Murder Followed by Suicide," and that would be a sort of a, a neat sort of uh, uh, distinguished uh, uh, analysis. So it doesn't it doesn't go in the other direction as often. <laughs> oh, suicide followed by murder. <laughs> that's, that's a little harder to follow. Well, that, yeah, now that would be interesting. Yes, yes. Then you'd have the ghost, of course. <laughs> that, yes, that would. Oh, there you are. Now that, that never occurred to me. Yes, suicide followed by murder, or oh yes, another one that I used for um, I used for asylum. It was called. Um, morbid jealousy and murder, and again, it was a psycho, not a psychoanalytic, a psychiatric uh, uh, perspective on on what are sort of the, the you know the sort of clinical issues. Well, David, you're the son of a, a psychiatrist. You're, I'm sure your father's um, study has all sorts of books on its shelves. That uh, I remember those shelves vividly. I, I can I can picture them right now when you mention. Well, uh, but, uh, you know, my, my dad may have been, you know, at, at a, a, uh, he, he was a forensic psychiatrist. He, he was interested in um, people who had committed uh, uh, serious crimes while, um, uh, while insane. Uh, and this was what he had specialized in. And this is what he enjoyed talking about. This was his, his world. And he ran um, Britain's biggest uh, top security mental hospital. And he'd have to talk about his work. And so um, I was picking up this stuff, you know, morbid jealousy and murder when I was sort of <laughs> very, very young, really, it, in, a, in a formative stage. Um, and I, I think uh, I think anybody, you know, who had had a good look at me when I was probably seven or eight would say, that guy is either <laughs> going to become a... I think I'll become a drunkard or a gothic novelist. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope for the latter. <laughs> I wish people thought of me as uh, a potential gothic writer instead of uh, becoming like Ian Brady or something like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ian Brady! My father knew Ian Brady. No kidding. He knew. He knew. Oh no, no, no! When uh, uh, Myra Hindley and Ian Brady, after they had been, um, you know, caught, um, are, are these the Moore's killers? Yes. That's right, the Morris murderers. The, 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 the course didn't know altogether what to do with them. It was an age when, you know, the insanity defense was, uh, particularly in Britain, was uh, uh, far more often um, used than it is today. And um, Myra Hindley uh, showed all sorts of personality disorders and was very much under the influence of Ian Brady mm -hmm. when they took those children out onto the Moors and, and murdered them. Uh, and she spent some years in my father's hospital in the female wing. And he met Brady. Uh, he was asked if he would admit Brady to Broadmoor. Uh, and he went and he interviewed him. 
And and what he told me was that uh, he he would not admit him to his hospital because he said there was nothing he could do with him. He said he could not find a trace a trace of humanity in in that man. Wow. And he said. I, I, w- I would be of no use to him. This hospital would be of no use to him. There is nothing there to work with. This was his feeling about Ian Brady. So Brady languished in prison for the rest of his days. Uh, I wonder if that's related to, you know, you were talking about your development as a writer, you know, more and more toward character and towards, you know, seeing these kind of perhaps uh, universal Gothic forces, but embodied in a certain person. And I wonder if that question is, you could think of it the same way, like, is there something to work with in this character? You know, is there a trace of humanity there to, you know, to turn into a Heathcliff or to turn into someone who's dramatically compelling? Yes, I think that's a very good point. I think, um, uh, I think if you can't find that, um, then you have to rethink the character. Um, you know, you are, after all, in the end, at the service of a story, um, uh, and a reader, in, in, a, in fact, you know, sort of there's, there's somebody out there who I want to read this story, and uh, it's uh, there, are, there, there are times in Wuthering Heights where Emily Bronte, you know, steers very close to the wind, and, and Heathcliff is just so bad that um, you actually keep on reading because you are just sort of rather astonished at, at, at um, what he has created on the page. That uh, you know, he, he, he keeps behaving ever more, ever worse. His cruelty to others. Sort of knows no bounds. Uh, he's prepared to you know, sacrifice his own children in uh, you know a project of revenge against the uh, the man who married the woman he loved. Um, and um, uh, you begin to uh, be repelled by him. But at the same time, you can't stop turning the pages. Now, I think that's 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 as good as the Gothic gets. When you create a monster who is believable but monstrous and attractive because of the monstrosity, because of the extreme of the monstrosity. Mm. Uh, I think Hannibal Lecter might qualify for that uh, that, uh, definition also. I mean, we loved Hannibal Lecter, (laughs) and uh, he didn't have a lot of redeeming human qualities either. Absolutely, and maybe that's also part of how the Gothic manifests in people, is, you know, this sense of unfinished business in that, you know, there's something monstrous or perverse about them, but there's also something, you know, charismatic or compelling. So that, you know, when your father said, I can't treat Ian Brady, he would say, you know, this is someone whose business is finished. Like there isn't any question about him, right? That's it, yeah. Yes, his, yes, his business is finished. If there was humanity there, it, it has been snuffed out, although I suspect that he would have diagnosed him uh, as as uh, you know, homicidal psychopath, and probably probably seen the roots of of that condition in in very early childhood. There is a you know a, a theory uh, of uh, you know psych- psychopaths that says that if if at a very at a very very young age, a very crucial age, there is no uh, no interaction of warmth between child and parent or child and significant other, um, there is no chance for any um, sense of, uh, of empathy to uh, develop. But did he have any kind of warmth or empathy towards his wife, Mira Hendley, who I feel like they had engaged in this 
toxic love affair that became so deep and so entrenched and so confusing and then mired and and murder and all the things that they were doing that I do wonder how much of it comes from like the complication of this like haptic process of being with another person and being in love with them and manipulating them and and loving them and I don't know you know I I I don't know the specifics of like what their relationship was like but what makes them so compelling outside of their crimes was their relationship with each other and there's something there to me that's like I wouldn't even say it's gothic it it almost surpasses gothic but maybe that's the line between gothic and horror (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, my my father did speak about that and uh, and suggested that. Um, well, he's he was fairly clear that uh, Myra Hindley had was was uh, easily dominated by um, uh, by Brady and that he simply sort of overpowered her and she lost uh, she lost completely lost her moral compass. Uh, uh, because she was in thrall to him in a in, you know in a deeply sick way. Um, but when they were separated, uh, and she began to be, you know, re- receive some psychiatric treatment in, in my father's hospital and elsewhere, um, she began to uh, regain her humanity, um, and she was uh, eventually uh, was um, able to, you know, for, for periods, um, you know, return to society. So all was not lost with Myra Hindley, but for that period of of her life, she was utterly and totally dominated by this this very powerful personality. You know, Hitler did the same thing to the entire German nation. Yeah, well, it does seem we're all far more suggestible and and susceptible than we think. You know, there's something in us that, you know, as uh, Nietzsche would say, like yearns yeah, you know, that calls up the void and yearns for the void, you know, and that they're, we're, we're drawn toward it. And, and maybe that's why in a lot of your books that, you know, love and you know, <laughs> sexual jealousy and murder, as you were saying, you know, are, are connected, <laughs> that there's something that, you know, is stimulated in us. Like, I, you know, I, I read Dr. Haggard's disease last week, and, and there was a part I was, I was really struck by where Haggard talks about wholeness, you know, and he said, like, when he began this love affair, it was the first time he'd felt whole you know or felt that he wasn't just mm. part of something but that a synthesis had occurred and therefore yeah. his disease you know could have various meanings but one meaning is the feeling of having lost that wholeness so maybe it's like you know having woken up from the spell you know having been expelled from the kind of womb of the love affair or of the you know national delusion where you you know are supporting hitler and think you're you're, you're fighting for the for the greater good Yes, so that's a good way to put it. Yes, you, you, the, you know, the spell will break, but while it's a spell, you are spellbound. And um, yes, and, and, and poor old Haggard does, does um, he suffers for love uh, and um, is broken by the end end of the affair, uh, and 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 his breaking is sort of uh, 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 acted out in the sense of the uh, the, the angry husband. Doctor Vaughan, um, what's he? Is he called Ratty Vaughan? I've forgotten what what his first. Yeah, name. he has something like Rat that. Cliff. Rathbone or something like that. Yeah. Rat Ratcliffe, I think. Ratcliffe. Yes, and he and he knocks Haggard down the stairs, and so thereafter, you know, he's got a thing he calls, you know, Spike that lives in his hip, 
uh, and forces him to limp and causes a lot of pain, causes enough pain that he has to take morphine in order to quell the pain and becomes addicted to the morphine, of course. And so, you know, the, the whole chain of disasters um, uh, follows on from his giving himself uh, without reserve to, to the love of the um, pathologist's wife. But uh, yes, and wherein lies his disease? And I think I was reading, I think there's a, there's a book by Stondhal, I think all called On Love, in which he treats of love, as I remember, as a sort of disease. Very, very French idea, I think. Mm. Absolutely. That, I read this book once called The Erotic Phenomenon by uh, Jean-Luc Marion, who, who's another French kind of theological philosopher. And, and he says yeah. that, you know, the horror of desire is that as you experience it, it's for someone or something else, right? That you desire, you know, the love of another person or you desire attainment or money or status or something. But mm. the actual reality of it is as a void in yourself, right? It's a kind of negative capability in your own heart, let's say. And the fear <laughs> yeah. that you have is that you'll never realize it, right? That that person will never love you back or that you'll never achieve, you know, you'll never publish a book or whatever. And, you know, and, you, and that fear is legitimate. But according to Marion, the deeper fear is sometimes when it is validated, right? And the person does love you or you do, you know, become a millionaire or whatever, because then it's not inside you anymore. It's something or some person in the world. And by being in the world, yeah. it's subject to either jealousy, right? You're afraid someone else will also fall in love with the person you're in love with. You're afraid someone will take your money yeah. or whatever. You know, if you're a, you know, a dictator, you're afraid someone will usurp your position. And it can drive you mad because the thing you tried to satisfy in yourself, you instantiated in the world of things and flux that you can't control. Yeah, it almost becomes like an animus belief. Like it has this spiritual component that you see it in everything. It becomes outside of that person, but it animates all influential purposes yes, in yes, your life. Yes, yes, this is this is true of Dr. Haggard. Yes, he he, he becomes totally totally besotted and. Uh, uh, who did I read for when I was writing? I was reading Bataille. Mm. Uh, now you're talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I think it's sort of um, uh, got on ero erotism or some, some such thing. But, but yes, all of these ideas of, you know, the, 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 the double-sided nature of intense love, uh, the, the French seem very, very fond of. Mm. Yeah, it kind of destroys you. I mean, you know, thinking of Haggard, you know, literally being haggard and having this spike, you know, brokenness about him. And, and, you know, like we said earlier on about many of your characters having this impotence or having been destroyed in accidents or becoming these kind of spider-like beings, that, you know, the mm -hmm. risk you run in life is that if you commit yourself to the synthesis of obsessive love, you can't survive outside of that state. Like if it breaks apart, which it's probably bound to, you become a yeah. revenant. You become like less than you were before. Yes, 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 yes. I got a, a, a perfect example. I mean, it doesn't always have to work out that way. And um, I mean, we we have probably all, all known the the intensity of of uh, love in its uh, in its you know sexual love and in its early stages. Uh, and it doesn't have to uh, uh, tear everything down. I mean, it can. But at the same time, it can also mature, mutate, you know, develop into uh, uh, something more uh, grounded. 
something more. I think one of the aspects of that that intense, passionate love uh, that that the, um, the theorists point out is that it also sort of takes the individual out of the world, and the things of the world, like going to work, cease to matter. Uh, because the world has has sort of shrunk down to the to the the face and the body of the beloved, and so you become essentially an antisocial being. Um, but um, that can that can certainly occur at an early stage of such a, a love affair. But uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it can't then um, become the, the relationship cannot become socialized later on, uh, and and continue at a more a more, a more stable and less sort of fervid condition. So Haggard is just unlucky in that, you know, his love object is um, married to somebody else and that somebody else um, knocks him down the stairs and produces in him uh, a pain which creates a, an addiction to a drug. And uh, as we know, doctors don't have a lot of trouble um, satisfying a craving for morphine if they uh, if they need to. Yeah. Um, Maybe part of the the beauty of developing an artistic career is that you can stand slightly outside of it. You know, you can turn the love affair or the obsession with the idea and with the, you know, the characters, you can stand outside and sort of see their fate, but then yourself yes. can move on to the next project and you, you sort of, you know, it's, it's a way of surviving. Yes, yes it is. It is. No, you, you're absolutely right. You finished the book and, uh, uh, remain a little bit sort of under its spell, um, but then slowly some other idea comes along, and you know, faithless creature you are, you give yourself to the next one. I mean, we can have this as as a closing question, but I remember Patrick, you told me a story that your father had told you about. Maybe it was sort of a composite, but but about this patient that, as he was retiring, he warned his replacement not to let him out. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's right. That that was uh, that was a, a very uh, powerful story. Um, the man who um, he um, was convinced had committed a murder in his hospital, but had been clever enough uh, to conceal the fact that he he had in fact killed a fellow patient and had killed before he got to Broadmoor. And my father was convinced that uh, th this man needed to be uh, locked up for the rest of his days. Um, and he told this to his assistant, uh, um, his deputy superintendent, who was to take over from him. Within six months, uh, this very intelligent, manipulative, uh, uh, psychopathic uh, character had convinced the, um, uh, the new man um, that he was fit to be uh, uh, discharged, and, and within uh, within a few months after that, the man had moved to Holland, and he had uh, been caught in the uh, committing a robbery and had killed two Dutch policemen. Um, and um, but while he was loose, um, my my father had uh, gone to the Home Office and asked to be um, supplied with a, a service revolver because he thought this man could very well come to our home. Uh, that's how much he, uh, that's how dangerous he considered this man. It is really a story about how, how, how profoundly manipulative and um, uh, intelligent this is. Uh, there's something of Hannibal Lecter here, you know, which I think we all loved Hannibal Lecter. Um, because he was clearly so very sophisticated and intelligent, and yet utterly evil, to, evil to the bone. Um, 
I said, I think that was the story I, I, I told you. And I remember you said that he, you know, after he killed those Dutch police officers, I suppose was arrested in, in the Netherlands, right? And that your father read that or saw that. And you asked him and you said, you know, knowing everything you know about this, this man, what do you think he's doing right now? And your father said, learning Dutch as quickly as possible. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure he was right. Yes, yes, that's right. I forgot about it. Yes, indeed. He, he had, uh, he, he was, uh, th that man had seriously rattled him and he, he, he did not underestimate uh, just how manipulative, just how intelligent uh, and just how deadly he was. And if the possibility of this man coming to hunt you down doesn't turn you into a gothic novelist as a child, then nothing will. <laughs> <laughs> <There you are. laughs>